Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, part three of Lost in Translation. In this multi-part podcast, we are dealing with the translation that Joseph Smith somehow accomplished of the text that came to be known to the world as the Book of Mormon. We've already covered a number of aspects relating to this issue in parts one and two of this podcast. And in those episodes, I think it is fair to say we have uncovered a number of fresh and fascinating insights related to the Book of Mormon translation. In part three, I want to continue along that same trajectory. But first, I want to tie up a couple of loose ends from part two of Lost in Translation. The first has to do with the comments that I made regarding the church's essay on Book of Mormon translation. How in that essay, the church quotes witnesses on both sides of the issue of how it was Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. They quote witnesses saying that Joseph Smith put a stone in his hat and put his face over the hat and dictated the Book of Mormon. But then they also quote Oliver Cowdery from a statement allegedly made in 1831 that Joseph Smith translated it by means of the two stones set in the silver bow and attached to a breastplate. The essay does not deal with how these different accounts contradict each other or propose any method of resolving the contradiction. Instead, they just put the different statements out there for the readers to see and leave it up to the reader to decide for themselves how to make sense of it. I likened this method of dealing with contradictory witnesses on the Book of Mormon translation with a similar approach used by the church in their essay on Book of Abraham translation. There they put forward a handful, four or five different methods, different theories of how Joseph Smith could have translated the Book of Abraham and it still be inspired of God even though the text of the Book of Abraham has nothing to do with the papyrus from which Joseph Smith claimed to have translated it. Once again, these different theories have little to nothing to do with each other. They are in many respects contradictory to each other, and yet the church does not deal with the contradictory nature of these different theories. Instead, it just floats them out there and allows the reader to choose which of these theories they want to adopt as their own. The idea seems to be that if there are multiple theories that can account for the book of Abraham being inspired, then it must be inspired. Look at all the different theories we have to account for it. Prior to this, I have observed that the multiplicity of different theories to account for Book of Abraham translation does not actually strengthen the case that the Book of Abraham was divinely inspired. Rather, it weakens it. If there were an answer, an obvious answer, as to how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Abraham by inspiration, then there would only be one answer in the Book of Abraham essay. It would be the correct answer, and it would be the answer that is supported by the evidence. Instead, a bunch of different theories proposed as to how the Book of Abraham was translated actually gives away the fact that none of these theories by themselves are very good. If one of these theories were very good and stood head and shoulders above its fellow theories, then that would be the theory that would be proposed and promulgated by the church, and the other theories would not be mentioned at all. The reason I mention this here is because this past weekend I have been concluding my reading of the five primary plays of Anton Chekhov. Yes, this is what I do for fun in my spare time. For the past decade or so, I've been trying to learn a little bit about world classical literature, and recently I thought it would be a good idea to take a look 
at the plays by Anton Chekhov. This book contains his five primary plays, and the last play in this collection is called The Cherry Orchard. That may be one of his most famous plays. Perhaps many of you have heard of it before. The main problem set forth in The Cherry Orchard involves a family in late 19th century Russia. Now, this family used to be quite wealthy. They have an estate, and they have a very large mansion house on this estate. And of course, there's also a cherry orchard next to the house, but we're not going to deal with the cherry orchard for purposes of this podcast. Rather, we're going to deal with the fact that this family used to be wealthy, but is no longer, and they have to come up with some way to pay the mortgage on this mansion on their estate, or they're going to lose the house to foreclosure. And at this particular point in the play, one of the characters named Gaev, G-A-Y-E-V, is looking at all the different proposals that have been put forward by different members of the family as to how they can go about paying the mortgage. Now, none of these proposals really have a snowball's chance in hell of working, and yet he is considering all of them together. And Gaev makes the observation that just because there are so many different alternatives that people have come up with to get money to pay the mortgage does not mean that they are really in a better position than if they had only one. And he likens it to a person who has a disease. And that person is given not just one remedy for the disease, but a whole host of different remedies for the disease. It is his opinion that if a person has a disease and a whole host of cures are given that could possibly treat that disease, then that is not a good thing. Here's what he says, this from The Cherry Orchard. If a great many remedies are suggested for a disease, it means that the disease is incurable. Now, that's a funny conclusion to come to because we would normally think if there are a great many remedies, then that's a good sign the disease is definitely curable. He goes the other way and suggests that it is the sheer number of remedies for the disease that means that the disease is incurable. He goes on to say, I keep thinking, racking my brains. I have many remedies, a great many, and that means, in effect, that I have none. That's the quote from The Cherry Orchard that resonated with me as I was reading it over the weekend and I immediately thought of the different remedies that are given for the disease, if I can use that expression, for the disease of explaining how it is that the book of Abraham could possibly be inspired, even though it has nothing to do with a papyrus from which Joseph Smith claimed to have translated it. The sheer number of remedies for this disease does not mean that it is curable Instead, it means quite the opposite. It means that it is incurable. Indeed, Gaev could be speaking about the book of Abraham itself when he says, I keep thinking, racking my brains. I have many remedies, a great many. And that means, in effect, that I have none. So that's the first thing I wanted to share with you tonight. The second thing has to do with this very quote that we were talking about earlier from Oliver Cowdery. That appears in the church's essay, on Book of Mormon translation. Now, it was very important for the church to get a quote as early as possible from one of the witnesses that Joseph Smith used the quote-unquote Urim and Thummim in translating the Book of Mormon so that they could put it in their essay and juxtapose that eyewitness account against the other eyewitness accounts that Joseph Smith used his seer stone and put his face in a hat. Here's that passage from the essay. The principal scribe, Oliver Cowdery, testified under oath in 1831 that Joseph Smith, quote, found with the plates from which he translated his book, two transparent stones resembling glass set in silver bows, that by looking through these, he was able to read in English the reformed Egyptian characters which were engraven 
on the plates, period, end of quote. Now, once again, it is clear the authors of the essay wanted to go back for a statement as early as possible in time to support the dominant narrative and to juxtapose it against the statements quoted earlier from Martin Harris and Emma Smith that he translated using his seer stone. Now, when I read this quote from the essay the first time, the thing that struck me was not only that Oliver Cowdery is giving this testimony apparently in 1831, which contradicts the testimony of other witnesses, but that Oliver Cowdery was testifying under oath once again it states in the essay, the principal scribe Oliver Cowdery testified under oath in 1831 that Joseph Smith, etc. So the question that came to my mind is, why was Oliver Cowdery testifying under oath? That suggests a trial or legal proceeding of some sort and a legal proceeding as early as 1831. Well, they give this quote from Oliver Cowdery and then they give a footnote, footnote 31 in the essay. If I click on that footnote, it brings up this source. It comes from a person who is apparently just identified by their initials AWB, and it is from an article titled Mormonites from the publication Evangelical Magazine and Gospel Advocate, published April 19, 1831, page 120. Now, it is clear to me that the authors of this essay felt it was very, very important to get this quote in from Oliver Cowdery. And the reason this is clear to me is because there are dangers associated with quoting to this particular article. Now, actually, I had never heard of this article prior to doing this podcast. But when I clicked on this link and came up with this reference, I thought it might be a good idea to go and look at the actual source document from which they are getting this quote. Now, as it turns out, in addition to the statement from Oliver Cowdery, there are a number of statements from other individuals contained in the same document that are very problematic to the orthodox narrative of how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon. And when you give the source from which you're quoting, you allow people to follow that source and find out this problematic information for themselves. That's why I say that it must have been very important to the authors to get this quote from Oliver Cowdery to use it in the essay, because by quoting it, they gave a roadmap to anybody who might be interested in finding out what the rest of the article has to say. Now, let me be clear about this. The church essay has a reference to the article, but it does not provide a hyperlink. In other words, there is no way to automatically go to this document. You actually have to do a little Google research yourself by putting the citation in and perhaps a block of the text that is being quoted. That's what I did in order to actually find the document that they are using as their source for this quote from Oliver Cowdery. It is clear that the person who wrote this article has no belief in Mormonism or the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith's ability to translate the Book of Mormon. In fact, the person who wrote this article appears to be aware of Joseph Smith's earlier activities using his seer stone to find lost treasure, which he never actually found. And it is the opinion of the person who wrote this article that Joseph Smith was doing this in order to deceive his neighbors and defraud them of their money. It is also clear that the person who wrote this article sees Joseph Smith's use of the seer stones, and this is where he quotes Oliver Cowdery, sees Joseph Smith's use of the seer stones to translate the Book of Mormon as just another variation on the theme. Once again, he is using seer stones, and once again, he is using them to defraud his neighbors by making them think that he has powers that he does not have. Here is the statement in full from this article. It is titled Mormonites, and it is addressed to the editors of the Evangelical Magazine and Gospel Advocate. That's the entire name of this publication. It is published in Utica, New York, and this comes from April 9th, 1831, commencing with the first paragraph. In the sixth number of your paper, I saw a notice of a sect of people called Mormonites. 
and thinking that a fuller history of their founder, Joseph Smith Jr., might be interesting to community, and particularly to your correspondent in Ohio, where perhaps the truth concerning him may be hard to come at. I will take the trouble to make a few remarks on the character of that infamous imposter. So once again, from the outset, we can see that the writer of this article is no friend of Joseph Smith. The writer of this article also lives in New York and apparently was reading an earlier publication from the Evangelical Magazine in which somebody in Ohio, a correspondent in Ohio, mentioned something about Joseph Smith. Well, the person who wrote this, AWB, lives in New York and knew something or claims to know something about Joseph Smith from the days he lived in New York. Remember, Joseph Smith lived in New York for only a brief period of time after the Book of Mormon came off the press in March of 1830 and after the church was organized in April of 1830. Joseph Smith was in New York only a brief time after that and ended up moving from New York to Ohio in early 1831. So he was there in New York, Joseph Smith was, for less than a year after the church was organized. He went out to Ohio. He was noticed by a correspondent in Ohio. The correspondent wrote to the Evangelical Magazine, which published some comments from this correspondent. And here comes this individual, AWB, from New York, who has some background information that he wants to share about Joseph Smith and his days when he lived in New York prior to heading out to Ohio. Once again, he says, in the sixth number of your paper, I saw a notice of a sect of people called Mormonites, that's what they used to be called, the Mormonites, and thinking that a fuller history of their founder, Joseph Smith Jr., might be interesting to the community, and particularly to your correspondent in Ohio, where perhaps the truth concerning him may be hard to come at. You see, he moved from New York to Ohio to make a fresh start. Or at least if that was not the intent, it certainly had the effect of giving Joseph Smith a fresh start and leaving all the stories about him and his money-digging days behind him in New York. This statement by AWB goes on. For several years preceding the appearance of his book, he was about the country in the character of a glass looker, pretending by means of a certain stone or glass, which he put in a hat, to be able to discover lost goods, hidden treasures, mines of gold and silver, and etc. Although he constantly failed in his pretensions, notice that he never actually found any mines of gold and hidden treasures, although he constantly failed in his pretensions, still he had his dupes, who put implicit confidence in all his words. In this town, a wealthy farmer named Josiah Stowell, together with others, spent large sums of money in digging for hidden money, which this smith pretended he could see and told them where to dig, but they never found their treasure. So here, this individual is referring back to the incident with Josiah Stowell, where Joseph Smith used his seer stone to help Josiah Stowell find buried treasure, and yet it was unsuccessful. And Josiah Stowell's nephew, I believe it was, ended up bringing Joseph Smith to trial in 1826 on the charge of glass looking. At that trial, Josiah Stoll, the alleged victim of Joseph Smith, ended up testifying on Joseph Smith's behalf. And once again, this statement by AWB appears to have been signed at South Bainbridge in Chenango County in March of 1831. The statement goes on, at length the public, becoming wearied with the base imposition which he was palming upon the credulity of the ignorant, you can see why I say he's no believer in Mormonism, for the purpose of sponging his living from their earnings, had him arrested as a disorderly person, tried and condemned 
before a court of justice. This is the 1826 Bainbridge trial. But considering his youth, he being then a minor, and thinking he might reform his conduct, he was designedly allowed to escape. This was four or five years ago. So once again, this being signed in 1831, four or five years ago, would have placed it in 1826. He is referring to the 1826 trial of Joseph Smith for being a glass looker. From this time, he absented himself from this place, returning only privately and holding clandestine intercourse with his credulous dupes for two or three years. So that much we already know about Joseph Smith in the 1826 Bainbridge trial, but he goes on now to talk about another proceeding, another trial, another court case that apparently happened in the summer of 1830. And it was from that court case that he is quoting Oliver Cowdery. We'll get to that here in a second. He goes on. During the past summer, he was frequently in this vicinity. Now, during the past summer, that would have been the summer of 1830. During the past summer, he was frequently in this vicinity and others of baser sort as Cowdery, Whitmer, etc. It's interesting hearing Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer being referred to as people of a baser sort, but that was apparently the perspective from this particular individual. During the past summer, he was frequently in this vicinity and others of baser sort as Cowdery, Whitmer, etc., holding meetings and proselyting a few weak and silly women and still more silly men whose minds are shrouded in a mist of ignorance which no ray can penetrate and whose credulity the utmost absurdity cannot equal. A little bit of purple prose there from our writer of this statement. Now he talks about this legal proceeding. In order to check the progress of delusion and open the eyes and understandings of those who blindly followed him and unmask the turpitude and villainy of those who knowingly abetted him in his infamous designs, he was again arraigned before a bar of justice during last summer to answer to a charge of misdemeanor. So this is a separate court proceeding. In addition to 1826, Joseph Smith was also arraigned on a misdemeanor in the summer of 1830, according to the statement. This trial led to an investigation of his character and conduct, which clearly evinced to the unprejudiced whence the spirit came which dictated his inspirations. One gets the idea that this person does not think they came from God. During the trial, it was shown that the Book of Mormon was brought to light by the same magic power by which he pretended to tell fortunes, discover hidden treasures, and etc. Now, this is his lead-in to quoting Oliver Cowdery's testimony at the trial. The author of the statement sees Joseph Smith's use of stones to translate the Book of Mormon as directly connected with his use of his seer stone to try and find hidden treasure, unsuccessfully find hidden treasure when he was a money digger. He sees it as simply two points on the same continuum, and he thinks that both of them are just as fabricated and that only weak-minded men and women would follow him or believe him in either of these activities. Once again, during the trial, it was shown that the Book of Mormon was brought to light by the same magic power by which he pretended to tell fortunes, discover hidden treasures, and etc. And now we get to the quote that is lifted from this 1831 statement and used in the church essay. Oliver Cowdery, one of the three witnesses to the book, testified under oath that said Smith found with the plates from which he translated his book two transparent stones resembling glass set in silver bows. That by looking through these, he was able to read in English the reformed Egyptian characters which were engraved on the plates. 
Now, once again, one of the dangers of quoting from the statement is that it leaves open the possibility for a curious individual such as your humble correspondent to go back and actually look up the document that they're quoting from and read it in context. As used in the essay, they want the reader to understand that there is an early statement by Oliver Cowdery, made under oath no less, that Joseph Smith translated the book using the two transparent stones resembling glass set in silver bows. What they probably do not want the reader to understand is that the person who is quoting Oliver Cowdery to this effect does not have a favorable attitude toward this testimony by Oliver Cowdery. This is what the writer of this statement has to say after quoting Oliver Cowdery's testimony. So much for the gift and power of God by which Smith says he translated his book. Two transparent stones, undoubtedly of the same properties, and the gift of the same spirit as the one in which he looked to find his neighbor's goods. It is reported and probably true that he commenced his juggling by stealing and hiding property belonging to his neighbors, and when inquiry was made, he would look in his stone, his gift and power, and tell where it was. So the essay wants to use this quote from Oliver Cowdery to support the orthodox theory of how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, but the person who's quoting that testimony in the original document does not see it that way. Instead, he sees it as a direct linkage to Joseph Smith's earlier treasure digging activities. But that's not the only danger in quoting from this document in the church essay because this document contains additional testimony from this trial that is not very helpful toward the theory that Joseph Smith translated by the gift and power of God. But before I get to that, I have to note the fact that this person who wrote the document does not claim to have been present at the trial. It is not clear where he is getting these quotes from, where he's getting the quote from Oliver Cowdery, or where he's getting the quote from Josiah Stowell, whose testimony he will quote here in a second. So we have to keep that in mind when evaluating his accuracy. He goes on to say, Josiah Stowell, a Mormonite, remember of course that this is the same Josiah Stowell for whom Joseph Smith helped find treasure unsuccessfully, in 1825. But apparently he was brought up to testify as to Joseph Smith's character in the trial that was held in the summer of 1830 as well. Josiah Stowell, a Mormonite being sworn, testified that he positively knew that said Smith never had lied to or deceived him and did not believe he ever tried to deceive anybody else. The following questions were then asked him, to which he made the replies annexed. Question, did Smith ever tell you there was money hid in a certain glass, which he mentioned. By which I think is meant, did Joseph Smith ever use his glass in order to tell him that there was money hidden in a certain location? Once again, this question, did Smith ever tell you there was money hid in a certain glass, which he mentioned? Answer, yes. Question, did he tell you you could find it by digging? Answer, yes. Did you dig? Answer, yes. Did you find any money? Josiah Stoll answers, no. Then the question, did he not lie to you then and deceive you? You see, Josiah Stoll is here as a witness on Joseph Smith's behalf saying that he's never lied to anybody. And now the questioner, who is doubtless the prosecution, asking the question, well, didn't he lie to you then and deceive you? The answer from Josiah Stoll, no. The money was there, but we did not get quite to it. Question, how do you know it was there? Answer, Smith said it was. So this is how it is 
that Josiah Stoll knows that Joseph Smith never lied and never tried to deceive anybody, least of all himself, because even though Joseph Smith said there was treasure buried in a certain location and they digged for it and did not find it, the way Josiah Stoll resolves this inconsistency in his mind is they did not quite get to the treasure. Well, then how does he know it was there in the first place? Because Joseph said it was. And now this last part of testimony that is quoted in this statement from the trial in the summer of 1830 is definitely something that the church does not want its members to find out. And so it's going to be left up to Radio Free Mormon to bring it to your attention and to quote this statement in its entirety. I have heard on occasion of different associates of Joseph Smith admitting to them in private that he actually could not see anything in his seer stone, that it was a ruse that he used in order to be able to get money. Not the money from treasure that was buried, but the money he was paid in order to find the treasure in the first place. This testimony comes from a fellow whose name I had never heard before, but whose name I will probably never forget. His name is Addison Austin. That's A-D-D-I-S-O-N, and Austin is like the city in Texas. Addison Austin was next called upon in this trial. Addison Austin was next called upon who testified that at the very time Stowell was digging for money, that would have been in 1825, he, Austin, was in company with said Smith, i.e. Joseph Smith, alone and asked him to tell him honestly whether he could see this money or not. Smith hesitated some time but finally replied, quote, to be candid between you and me, I cannot any more than you or anybody else, but any way to get a living. Period, end of quote. So that is what Addison Austin says Joseph Smith admitted to him in private about Joseph Smith's real ability to look in the stone and see where money was buried. He could not do it any better than anybody else could, but anyway, to get a living. Now, I cannot sit here and tell you that this testimony by Addison Austin is true, that Joseph Smith actually made this very damning confession to him in private. It does appear, however, that this was the testimony of Addison Austin at this trial held in the summer of 1830. But by the same token, I cannot tell you that the testimony of Oliver Cowdery, quoted in the same document, is any more reliable or verifiable than the statement by Addison Austin. They are both quoted from the same document, as is the testimony from Josiah Stowell. And what the church intends to do by using only the quote from Oliver Cowdery in its essay is to use it for its own polemical purposes while disregarding and ignoring and not citing to other statements from the same document, which should, in all fairness, be considered along with the statement from Oliver Cowdery. This is a principle of law that is found in the rules of evidence, which are the rules that trials are governed by in the United States. And that rule is found in Evidence Rule 106. It states this, when a writing or recorded statement, such as the one we have here from this individual AWB, when a writing or recorded statement or part thereof is introduced by a party, an adverse party may require the party at that time to introduce any other part or any other writing or recorded statement, which ought in fairness to be considered contemporaneously with it. So this is the rule that basically does not allow one party to cherry pick certain parts of a recorded or written statement for use in trial without the other party being allowed to come forward and say, now, wait a second, you don't get just to quote the parts that are favorable to yourself. In fairness, everything else in that statement needs to be quoted as well. And that is basically what I am doing here with this statement by AWB from 1831. The church has introduced the one quote from Oliver Cowdery in support of its position that there is an early statement by a Book of Mormon witness as to the means of Book of Mormon translation. They are not allowed to cherry pick that one statement 
without me coming forward or anybody else for that matter and saying, wait a second, you don't get to get away with quoting that one thing that's favorable to you. In fairness, you need to quote and consider the other statements in the same document that are not favorable to you to be taken into consideration when weighing the validity or probity or significance of the one statement from Oliver Cowdery that you did quote to. The writer of this document then gives his opinion about the testimony that he has quoted. Here then, we have his own confession, i.e. Joseph Smith's own confession to Addison Austin. Here then, we have his own confession that he was a vile, dishonest imposter. As regards the testimony of Josiah Stowell, it needs no comment. He swears positively that Smith did not lie to him. So much for a Mormon witness. Paramount to this, in truth and consistency, was the testimony of Joseph Knight, another Mormonite. Newell Knight, son of the former, and also a Mormonite, testified under oath. So here he's going to refer to the testimony of Newell Knight from this same trial, that Newell Knight testified under oath that he positively had a devil cast out of himself by the instrumentality of Joseph Smith Jr., and that he saw the devil after it was out, but could not tell how it looked. So apparently, according to the statement, Newell Knight testified at this trial that he believed Joseph Smith was a prophet because by the power of God, Joseph Smith cast the devil out of him, but was not able under further cross-examination to describe how the devil looked. That appears to be what's being summarized here. Once again, Newell Knight, son of the former, i.e. son of Joseph Knight, and also a Mormonite, testified under oath that he positively had a devil cast out of himself by the instrumentality of Joseph Smith Jr., and that he saw the devil after it was out, but could not tell how it looked. The writer of the statement ends with one more paragraph of purple prose. Those who have joined them in this place are, without exception, children who are frightened into the measure, or ignorant adults whose love for the marvelous is equaled by nothing but their entire devotedness to the will of their leader. With a few who are as destitute of virtue and moral honesty as they are of truth and consistency. As for this book, i.e. the Book of Mormon, and notice what he says here because once again he makes this link between the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's treasure digging activities by using his seer stone. As for his book, it is only the counterpart of his money digging plan. Fearing the penalty of the law and wishing still to amuse his followers, he fled for safety to the sanctuary of pretended religion. So according to A.W.B., who signed this in March of 1831, he sees Joseph Smith as going from defrauding people by pretending to use his seer stone to find buried treasure, which apparently he never found, to now defrauding people by using the same means to translate a book under the guise of religion. Because under the guise of religion, he is no longer subject to the penalty of the law as he was when he was using a seer stone to attempt to find buried treasure. Once again, those final two sentences. As for his book, it is only the counterpart of his money-digging plan. Fearing the penalty of the law and wishing still to amuse his followers, he fled for safety to the sanctuary of pretended religion. So I think we can see what a dangerous tactic it was for the authors of the church essay to actually cite to this document as a reference. And because it is so dangerous for them to have done so, it makes me conclude that number one, finding this quote from Oliver Cowdery was extremely important to them to present the view of the orthodox narrative in the church essay in juxtaposition to those witnesses who talked about Joseph Smith using a seer stone to translate the Book of Mormon. And not only was it very important to them, there were also apparently no safer alternatives from which they could quote Oliver Cowdery than this. 
because I have to presume that if there were safer alternatives, they would have quoted them, so that people who actually look up the article that they cite to for this statement from Oliver Cowdery would not find this host of other statements, which are not conducive to building faith in Joseph Smith as a translator of ancient records by divine means. But the church essay on Book of Mormon translation is not done quoting from Oliver Cowdery. They give the one quote from the 1831 document that we have just reviewed in detail, but they also give another quote from Oliver Cowdery in the sentence immediately following in the church essay. This is how they put it in the church essay. In the fall of 1830, Cowdery visited Union Village, Ohio, and spoke about the translation of the Book of Mormon. Soon thereafter, a village resident reported that the translation was accomplished by means of, quote, two transparent stones in the form of spectacles through which the translator looked on the engraving, period, end of quote. Now, put in context, this would have been the fall of 1830 when Cowdery and three other individuals were passing through Ohio on their mission to the Lamanites in Missouri. And while there, they preached some, they ended up sparking the interest of Sidney Rigdon and a number of members of his congregation. A great many ended up joining the church, and Joseph Smith and the church as a whole moved to Ohio from New York at the beginning of 1831. Once again, this is back in the fall of 1830, when Oliver Cowdery visited Union Village, Ohio, and spoke about the translation of the Book of Mormon. This is another instance in which a person who heard what Oliver Cowdery said, made a record of what it was that they heard Oliver Cowdery say. And again, they quote here the following part, and I begin it with quote and end of quote. Soon thereafter, a village resident reported that the translation was accomplished by means of, quote, two transparent stones in the form of spectacles through which the translator looked in the engraving, period, end of quote. Now that sounds very much like the dominant narrative that we grew up hearing from the church, that Joseph Smith used the spectacles, the two stones set in the silver bow, which were attached to the breastplate, in order to translate the Book of Mormon. The problem is, is that when we find the reference from which this quote is taken, what we learn is that this quote is only a partial quote and is apparently intentionally edited in order to give it the meaning that is desired by the essay. The essay cites to footnote 32, which says it's written by a fellow named Good Willie, G-O-O-D-W-I-L-L-I-E, that is one word, it is apparently a last name, in an article titled Shaker Richard McNemar, page 143. That is the entirety of the reference that is given for this quote. I took that information, I googled it, and I found that in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, of all places, we can find a little more information about the circumstances of this quote, and we can find the quote in its entirety, which, believe it or not, does not actually support the dominant narrative of the church. Here's what I found in the Joseph Smith Papers Project. In late 1830, while traveling through the Shaker community, okay, so he's preaching to Shakers, while traveling through the Shaker community of Union Village, Ohio, Oliver Cowdery explained the process of translation as recorded by one of the Shakers. So here's now the quote in its entirety. The engraving being unintelligible to learned and unlearned, there is said to have been in the box with the plates two transparent stones in the form of spectacles through which the translator looked on the engraving. If that last part sounds familiar, it's because it's what was quoted in the essay. Once again, the essay quotes 
this same document as saying that the translation was accomplished by means of, quote, two transparent stones in the form of spectacles through which the translator looked on the engraving, period, end of quote. But the quote from this document does not stop there. It goes on as we read in the Joseph Smith Papers Project. And by the way, I have to add that when the essay quotes this section from the statement and then puts period, end of quote, at the end of it, that is not technically correct because there is no period after the word engraving in the document from which they are quoting. It does not end by saying two transparent stones in the form of spectacles through which the translator looked on the engraving period, end of quote. Instead, it goes on to state the following. And now I will read this sentence in its entirety from the Joseph Smith Papers Project so you can see what it is I'm getting at. Quote, the engraving being unintelligible to learned and unlearned, or learned and unlearned, there is said to have been in the box with the plates two transparent stones in the form of spectacles through which the translator looked on the engraving and afterwards put his face into a hat and the interpretation then flowed into his mind which he uttered to the amanuensis who wrote it down. Amanuensis being a big word for a scribe who writes down what it is that he's being told to write down. For some reason... The essay omits this part of the quote from Oliver Cowdery, the part about Joseph Smith putting his face into a hat and the interpretation then flowing into his mind. It seems that what is going on here is that the essay admits that there are certain witnesses who talk about Joseph Smith using the seer stone in the hat, but juxtaposed to those witnesses, they want to go to Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery does seem to be the go-to guy in order to get quotes that seem to show that Joseph Smith did use the Urim and Thummim in translating the Book of Mormon as opposed to the seer stone. And who would be in a better position to know than Oliver Cowdery, who was Joseph Smith's principal scribe during the translation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today? But we find in the second instance that what the writers of the essay have done have intentionally omitted the part from the quote from Oliver Cowdery that talks about Joseph Smith putting his face into a hat and the interpretation then flowing into his mind. They have cut that part of the quotation off by improperly, I have to say, improperly inserting a period into the middle of this sentence and then putting the quotation marks at the end of the period in the essay as if the period were actually part of the quotation. Instead, if this is what they wanted to do, they should have gone to the word engraving and put dot 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 the ellipses and then put a period and then the parentheses to show that there was additional material in this same sentence that they were omitting, but they did not do that. Also in the same article on the Joseph Smith Papers Project, which by the way is titled Joseph Smith Documents Dating Through June 1831. If you go to the Joseph Smith Papers Project and Google that title, you should have no problem finding it. Once again, the name of this article on the Joseph Smith Papers Project from which I am quoting is Joseph Smith Documents Dating Through June 1831. And at the beginning of the collection of those documents, the Joseph Smith Papers Project has an introductory essay, and it is that essay from which I am quoting. In this article, they provide a different quote from Emma Smith regarding Joseph Smith's method of translating the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, who also served as a scribe for the translation, described his use of two distinct instruments. Here's what she said, quote, Now the first that my husband translated was translated by the use of the Urim and Thummim. And that was the part that Martin Harris lost. After that, he used a small stone, not exactly black, 
but was rather a dark color. So it is likely from this quote by Emma Smith that the idea has arisen, in which I have heard from time to time, that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim for the 116 pages that were lost when he was translating with Martin Harris. But after that, he used his seer stone, which Emma describes as being a small stone, not exactly black, but was rather a dark color. In other words, Joseph Smith used his seer stone after the lost 116 pages episode to translate the rest of the Book of Mormon, what we have today, in other words. The problems continue to multiply because this testimony by Emma Smith contradicts both Martin Harris and Oliver Cowdery. Let's see how it contradicts Martin Harris. First off, Emma is saying that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim to translate the part that Martin Harris lost. Well, that does not square with what Martin Harris had to say about the translation process. Remember his story about going down to the river to throw stones to relax during intervals in translation, and that he found a rock that looked like Joseph Smith's seer stone and swapped it out. And Joseph Smith, now looking at the switched out rock in the dark of the hat, could not translate and said to Martin, what's the matter? All is as dark as Egypt. And then he figured out that Martin Harris had swapped it out. And Martin Harris confessed to Joseph that that is exactly what he had done. This only makes sense. The story by Martin Harris only makes sense if Joseph Smith was translating using a seer stone during the 116 pages. In fact, it only makes sense if that was Joseph Smith's regular practice of translating using a seer stone during the 116 pages. So that's how Emma Smith seems to contradict what Martin Harris has to say about Joseph Smith using the Urim and Thummim during the translation of the 116 pages. But as I said, this statement by Emma also seems to contradict what Oliver Cowdery has to say. At least if we understand Oliver Cowdery as saying that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim something different from the seer stone in translating the Book of Mormon as we have it today. And once again, my research shows that Oliver Cowdery is the go-to guy in order to collect quotes that seem to suggest that that is the process that Joseph Smith used. But at least in the case of the second quote from Oliver Cowdery that's used in the essay, if we actually look at the quote in context, not only was the Urim and Thummim used, but also the person reporting what Oliver Cowdery said includes the use of a hat in the translation process. That's the part that the church essay does not want you to know about. But it gets even thornier than this because Oliver Cowdery was not in the neighborhood when Joseph Smith was translating the first 116 pages with Martin Harris. He was nowhere around. He didn't even know Joseph Smith at the time. He does not come on the scene until after that incident is over and shortly before Joseph Smith commences the translation of the rest of the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon as we have it today. That's when Oliver Cowdery appears on the scene and ends up being Joseph Smith's principal scribe during that second part of the translation process. What I'm getting at is that the only part that Oliver Cowdery can actually be talking about with any sense of being an eyewitness is Joseph Smith's translation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today. So he's not talking about the 116 pages. He's talking about the current Book of Mormon. And to the extent that Oliver Cowdery is being quoted as meaning that Joseph Smith used a method other than the seer stone during the translation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today, it runs headlong into this quote from Emma Smith, who says that Joseph Smith used the seer stone during the translation of the Book of Mormon as we have it today. Once again, this quote from Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, on the subject as quoted in the Joseph Smith Papers Project, quote, Now the first that my husband translated was translated by the use of the Urim and Thummim, and that was the part that Martin Harris lost. After that, he used a small stone 
not exactly black, but was rather a dark color. So you can see that the witnesses contradict each other on the method that Joseph Smith used to translate the Book of Mormon. The confusion about whether Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim is once again exacerbated by the fact that nobody uses the term Urim and Thummim to describe the interpreters or whatever it was Joseph Smith was using until January of 1833 in an article in the Evening and Morning Star written by William W. Phelps. And there he refers to the interpreters as Urim and Thummim only speculatively. This again from the article on the Joseph Smith Papers Project. In January 1833, an article in the church newspaper, The Evening and the Morning Star, declared that he, Joseph, had translated the Book of Mormon, quote, by the gift and power of God through the aid of a pair of interpreters or spectacles, parentheses, known perhaps in ancient days as teraphim or urim and thummim, end of parentheses, period, end of quote. So there, William W. Phelps is not positively identifying the interpreters as the Urim and Thummim, but is mentioning it only as a possibility. The essay goes on, soon thereafter, Smith, that's Joseph Smith, soon thereafter, Smith apparently began applying the biblical term Urim and Thummim to the interpreters or spectacles. So it sounds like Smith was inspired by this idea, written by William W. Phelps, and adopted it as his own and began referring to the interpreters as Urim and Thummim. The essay goes on, in addition to the device found with the plates, that's the two stones and the silver bow fastened to the breastplate that's described by Joseph Smith in his 1838 account and indeed earlier accounts mention spectacles of some sort being used. In addition to the device found with the plates, Joseph Smith also translated using other individual seer stones, which he would place in a hat to limit outside light. He and others apparently later referred to these seer stones as Urim and Thummim. See, later on, they call this Urim and Thummim, thus making it difficult to determine in later accounts whether they were referring to the device found with the plates or a separate stone that performed the same function. And here they give as an example, apparently, a quote from Oliver Cowdery. Oliver Cowdery, Smith's principal scribe for most of the translation, explained, quote, day after day, I continued uninterrupted to write from his mouth as he translated with the Urim and Thummim, or as the Nephites would have said, interpreters. This use by Oliver Cowdery of Urim and Thummim is after January of 1833, and it appears that he is using the idea initiated for all intents and purposes by William W. Phelps to describe the interpreters that Joseph Smith used. And then it continues with the quote from Emma, which we talked about earlier. Joseph Smith's wife, Emma, who also served as a scribe for the translation, described his use of two distinct instruments. Quote, now the first that my husband translated was translated by the use of the Urim and Thummim, and that was the part that Martin Harris lost. After that, he used a small stone, not exactly black, but was rather a dark color. So we can see that at a minimum, the eyewitnesses to how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon are all over the place about the method he used. It is not as simple as saying Oliver Cowdery is on one side of the equation talking about Urim and Thummim, and here are these other witnesses talking about the stone in the hat. It is not that simple at all, and in fact, in retrospect, it is possible to reconcile all these conflicting statements by the simple theory that Joseph Smith used a seer stone from beginning to end of his translation of the Book of Mormon. He used it for the 116 pages. He used it for the Book of Mormon as we have it 
today. The one theory that seems impossible to support in light of the different statements that we have is that Joseph Smith never used a seer stone during any part of the translation of the Book of Mormon. And once you have cracked open Pandora's box wide enough to allow for that understanding, then the rest follows pretty much as a matter of course, at least as one possible and I think supportable understanding of how it was that Joseph Smith translated all of the Book of Mormon, including the lost 116 pages. We can certainly find witness testimony to support that theory. And while we're talking about the witnesses on quote-unquote the other side of the equation, talking about Joseph Smith using a seer stone, we see that we have Emma Smith who mentions that. We see that we have David Whitmer who mentions that. We see that we have Martin Harris who mentions that. And we also have Joseph Knight Sr., who mentions the same kind of method. The quote from Joseph Knight Sr., who is a friend of the Smith family, recalled that after Smith, quote, put the Urim and Thummim, see once again, he's describing this in retrospect after 1833, when the Urim and Thummim has already come to be a commonly used term for the interpreters. Joseph Knight Sr. says that Joseph Smith, quote, put the Urim and Thummim into his hat and darkened his eyes. And then a sentence, quote, would appear in bright Roman letters. Then he would tell the writer and he would write it. Then that would go away. The next sentence would come and so on. But if it was not spelt right, it would not go away till it was right. So we see it was marvelous, period, end of quote, from Joseph Knight Sr. So what we end up having is witness after witness after witness on the one side of the equation about Joseph Smith using the stone in the hat. And here on the other side of the equation, we have a handful of quotes from Oliver Cowdery, which are used in order to try and support the idea that Joseph Smith actually used the stones in the silver bow attached to the breastplate in order to translate the Book of Mormon. But when we begin examining those quotes more thoroughly from Oliver Cowdery, we can see that at least one of them is taken out of context to remove the use of Joseph Smith's hat, which was also mentioned by Oliver Cowdery. We see that the late usage of Urim and Thummim to describe the seer stone also confuses the situation even further. And so, as I say, I think it's possible to arrive at a reasonable and defensible position that Joseph Smith uses seer stone for beginning to end of his translation of the Book of Mormon, 116 pages, and the Book of Mormon as we have it today. Now, typically what the church does is quote different witnesses who say that Joseph Smith used the seer stone, other witnesses that Joseph Smith used the Urim and Thummim, and suggest that Joseph Smith used the one method during some parts of his translation and the other method during other parts of his translation. But we've seen, even from the quote from Emma Smith, that even that suggestion runs into contradiction between the different witness accounts. There is no single theory that is going to account for all of these conflicting statements because they contradict each other. But I think the theory that Joseph Smith used the seer stone and the seer stone only to translate the Book of Mormon from beginning to end gives credence to the majority of witness statements and has the fewest number of contradictions. The Joseph Smith Papers Project also includes the quote from David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, who wrote that on the spiritual light of the seer stone, quote, a piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was his principal scribe, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear, and another character with the interpretation would appear. Thus, the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God and not by any power of man, period, end of quote. Now, 
This brings us full circle back to this paper that was written by the two BYU professors, Professor Joseph Fielding McConkie and Professor Craig J. Osler from BYU, because this is the quote from David Whitmer that they seek to debunk in this paper. Now, it is becoming clear to me that this episode is starting to run a bit long and I am not going to be able to get to my analysis of the final part of that paper by the two BYU professors. That will have to wait until part four. I want to close out this part, part three, with a couple of more observations and then a story for you, my listeners, from my mission, which I think may have a lot to do with Oliver Cowdery's translation of the Book of Mormon. First, the observations. Let's go back for a second, if we can, to the church essay on Book of Mormon translation. We talked about the two quotes from Oliver Cowdery, the first quote, which led us to that document that had a lot of explosive information contained in it, and the second quote from Oliver Cowdery, which was taken not necessarily out of context, but which was cut in half, and only the first half that supported the church's theory that it wanted to present in the essay was quoted in the second half about how Joseph Smith placed his face in the hat and dictated with his face in the hat while his amanuensis, or his scribe, wrote it down, was omitted. The first thing is that we can see from this analysis that even in the church essays, the LDS church is still hiding, intentionally hiding, information from its members. Now, it is certainly true that the church essays are a milestone in the church's telling of its own history because it is being more transparent in its essays than it has ever been before. But it is clear that if total transparency is their goal, they still have a long way to go. The second observation has to do with the same quote from Oliver Cowdery, because from my analysis of this second quote, when we find out the rest of the story, i.e. the entirety of this second quote from Oliver Cowdery, we learn that in a very early version of his recounting of the story of how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, Oliver Cowdery says that Joseph Smith had his head in the hat when he dictated. Now granted that apparently he says that prior to putting his face in the hat to dictate, he looks through the spectacles at the engravings on the plates. And yet it cannot be gainsaid that part of Oliver Cowdery's account of the dictation has Joseph Smith putting his head in the hat before he begins to actually dictate the words of the Book of Mormon. The more I think about this statement, the more significant it appears to me. Once again, Oliver Cowdery is the go-to guy that church historians go to in order to get quotes to support the dominant narrative of the LDS Church on Book of Mormon translation. But in no other quote from Oliver Cowdery that I have ever seen does he actually mention Joseph Smith putting his face in the hat. What that means is, whenever Oliver Cowdery is talking about how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon and does not mention Joseph Smith's face in the hat, we know that it's there, still in the background. Oliver Cowdery mentioned Joseph Smith's face in the hat in the fall of 1830, and apparently in no other account does he mention this important fact. What that means to me is that even if Oliver Cowdery is not mentioning Joseph Smith's face in the hat in other accounts, it's still there. He knows it still happened, but Oliver Cowdery is, for whatever reason, choosing to not mention that fact. But now, whenever I read any other account of Oliver's as to how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, what I know is that, whether he mentions it or not, Joseph Smith's face was in the hat while he dictated. So now, in closing, I want to return to the story that we talked about in Episode 2, which is how Oliver Cowdery was told that he could translate the Book of Mormon in Section 9 of the Doctrine and Covenants. All he had to do was ask of God, but then he gave it a whack. 
He was not able to translate it. And in section 9 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Oliver was told that he failed because he thought all he had to do was ask. Actually, he had to study it out in his mind. It was only in the last couple of days that in connection with this story from church history, I recall this incident from my mission, which I think has a lot to do with this story about Oliver Cowdery being told he could translate, trying, failing, and then being told, sorry, you didn't try to translate in the right way. Now, I think I've mentioned before that when I was young, I was an amateur magician. I still am a little bit today, though I'm a bit rusty. But when I was a teenager, I was very involved in magic, studying magic, studying the theory and the philosophy and even the psychology behind magic. And I was so, so good by the time I was on my mission. Well, it is the spring of 1981. I am stationed in the city of Sakai, Japan, which is a suburb of Osaka. And by this time in my mission, I am over a year out. I went into the MTC in November of 1979, so by spring of 1981, I've been out over a year. And I am a trainer missionary. I'm also a district leader in this particular apartment. There are four missionaries in the apartment, two companionships. There's me and my companion, and then another companionship. Because I had been out so long, I am now a trainer, which means that I get green beans occasionally sent out to me for me to train. And I had a green bean with me at this time in the spring of 1981 in Sakai, Japan. And his name, coincidentally enough, the name of this green bean was Elder Green. And one evening, we'd gotten back from a hard day of tracting, and I decided I would have some fun and I would show the other elders a magic trick. Now, this is one of my very best magic tricks. It's not difficult to do. I could teach anybody in the audience how to do it. However, I am bound by secret oaths of a magician not to reveal the secret of magic tricks. But take it from me. It's not that difficult to do, but it looks absolutely amazing. It's a wonderful effect, and here's how it goes. I gather the other three missionaries in the kitchen of our apartment, and I tell them we're going to conduct an experiment in psychic transference. Now, psychic transference doesn't mean anything as far as I know, but it is a way of performing a magic trick, and this magic trick specifically, which tends to give it an aura of, wow, maybe this really is happening. Maybe it's not just a magic trick. So I say that we, all four of us here, are going to conduct an experiment in psychic transference. And here's how we're going to do it. I had somehow managed to get a deck of cards. They're playing cards. They're face cards for crying out loud. I can't remember how it was that I happened to have those in a missionary apartment back in 1981, but nevertheless, it is the case. So I got out the deck of playing cards. I shuffled them up. I allowed one of the missionaries to make a completely free selection <clears throat> of any card in the deck. They looked at it. I had them show it to the other two missionaries, so all three missionaries knew what that card was that was freely selected, except I did not. We then dug out a piece of paper. This would be an 8.5 by 11 size piece of paper. Draw a circle in the middle of this blank piece of paper. And then, with my back turned, I told them to write the name of the card inside the circle on the blank piece of paper. Once they did that, they were to fold that paper into quarters so that it could no longer be read from the outside. I then turned around, I took this piece of paper from them, and I lit it with a match so that it began to burn. I then dropped it into a pot so it could continue to burn. This is, by the way, one of the reasons you do this trick in a kitchen and not somewhere else because there's a danger of ash getting everywhere, as you will see presently. So once this paper is completely burned, all it is is a charred piece of ash. And I tell the audience, I tell these three other missionaries that at this point, nobody can read the name of the card on that paper just by looking at it because all it is is a big piece of ash. And they agree with me that that's the case because obviously it is. I then say that, however, on a molecular level, on a molecular level, that name is still written on the piece of paper. And the only question is whether we can come up with a way of revealing 
what the name of that card was that was written on the piece of paper by the obliging missionary. So I tell them I want the three of them to focus in their minds and concentrate on the name of that card that was written on that piece of paper. Just the way it had been written on the piece of paper, the card that I don't know what it is, but they know. I then roll back the sleeve of my white shirt on my left arm, exposing my left forearm. I take with my right hand the ashes from the pot, and I begin to rub those ashes back and forth across my left forearm. And I tell them to continue to concentrate on the name of that card while I'm doing so. Back and forth, back and forth. Ashes are going everywhere. Once again, why it is you do it in the kitchen. I'm over the sink at this point. Ashes going everywhere. And as I'm rubbing back and forth on my forearm, and as they're concentrating on the name of the card, magically, miraculously, the name of the card appears on my forearm in dark ash. There's ash everywhere, but even darker in the ash is written the name of the card just as it was written down on that piece of paper. Now that is a great effect. Everybody was suitably impressed and a good time was had by all. I'm pretty sure the other two missionaries appreciated it as a magic trick. But Elder Green actually believed that what I was saying was true. That that this really was an experiment in thought transference or psychic transference or whatever it was I said. And the entire next day while we're out on our bicycles and we're going out tracking and trying to contact people and teach them about Joseph Smith and the First Vision and the Book of Mormon, he is talking to me and saying, was that really an experiment? Was that a trick? And all day long, I assured him that it was not a magic trick. And yes, it was actually an experiment in psychic transference. Well, somewhere during the course of the day, he begins to ask me if he could do it too. And I assure him, yes, you could do it. Anybody could do it if they just followed the same procedure that I used and if everybody concentrated the same on the name of the card. Now, while I'm doing the trick, by the way, I'm saying that I'm not sure if it's going to work, but everybody has to concentrate and we'll see if it works. So it really looks like an experiment. That's kind of how I presented it. That's the point. And he's asking, well, will it work if I do it? And I said, well, I'm not sure. It may work, but if it's going to work, you have to do it exactly the same way that I did it. So by the time we get back to the apartment the next evening, Elder Green is all fired up and he wants to try this experiment and see if he can do it too, if it'll work, if he does the same steps that I do. So, so we get back to the apartment. He goes in to the kitchen to find the deck of cards to get the pot out of the pantry, get the paper, get everything ready. And I go and tell the other two missionaries, hey, come here, you got to look at this. So all three of us now go back to the kitchen to watch Elder Green try his experiment in thought transference. And he does everything exactly the way that I did it the night before. He has somebody select a card exactly the same way. He has them write a circle on a piece of paper exactly the same way. He has them write the name of the card in the circle exactly the same way with his back turned. It's folded into force. He takes it. He lights a match. He puts it to the corner of the paper. It burns up. He drops it in the pot. And now he pulls back the sleeve of his shirt on his left arm. He grabs the ash out of the pot and he begins to rub it back and forth on his arm, expectantly looking at his arm to see the name of the card appear. Well, it doesn't really start appearing, so he grabs some more ash and he rubs it back and forth. And he's rubbing so vigorously, ash is getting everywhere. He's getting all this black ash all over his white shirt. It's going over the counters. It's going over the floor. It's going everywhere. And so after a full minute of watching him rub this ash all over his arm and getting it everywhere, and no name of the card is appearing, finally, I can't hold it anymore. I have to bust out laughing. The other two missionaries bust out laughing. We are dying laughing at the spectacle of Elder Green actually thinking that if he did the same thing that I did the night before, that the name of the card would appear on his arm. And he got very upset. And he looked at me and he said, eat rocks, Elder Radio Free Mormon. 
That was his favorite expression. I've never heard it before or since, but that was his expression that he used when he got upset with me, which was, eat rocks, Elder Radio Free Mormon. There were at least three other times during our brief companionship together that he used that expression on me. And maybe some other time I'll tell you about those other times when he said, eat rocks, Elder Radio Free Mormon. But the thing is this, in retrospect, obviously, once we all started laughing, he realized that the jig was up and he had been fooled into thinking that what I had done the night before was really something that was miraculous, that was really something that was bordering on supernatural, but that it could be done if somebody followed the exact same method that I had followed and if everybody concentrated enough on the card. It was only when we started laughing that he realized that he'd been taken in and it was only a magic trick and he had been led to believe by, well, yours truly, that this was something other than just a magic trick. But in retrospect, as I say, in retrospect, I wonder what would have happened if I had not laughed when he failed to produce the name of the card on his forearm in ash. But instead of laughing, I had simply told him, wow, you must not have done it the right way. I think the problem is, is that you didn't study it out in your mind, Elder Green. And I wonder if I had taken that approach. I wonder if to this day, Elder Green would still be believing that that name of the card had appeared on my forearm by psychic transference. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.